When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by Ejay Temulkaran, author of the new book, Together. 10 Choices for a Better Now. And in conversation with Matthew Taylor, they discussed how we can move beyond our current crisis and create a more enjoyable and fulfilling world by making some tough choices right now. It's a really fascinating conversation. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Ejay's book in the podcast description. But now let's go to the episode. Well, I've been looking forward to this event for quite a while. Ejay is one of Turkey's best-known novelists and political commentators. Her journalism has appeared in The Guardian, New York Times, New Statesman, Der Spiegel, and more. She won the Penn Translate Award for her novel, Women Who Blow On Knots, which I'm currently halfway through reading. It's fantastic. And is the author of How to Lose a Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship. Her new book, here it is, Together, Ten Choices for a Better Now, is published today. Literally today, so hot off the press. Okay, uh, Ejay, so how are you? I'm fine. How are you, Matthew? It's so nice to be with you today for this lounge event. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. My first question, Ejay, is this. You are a woman of many talents. You are a novelist. You are a journalist. You are an essayist. You are an activist. I think you're even a poet. When you're, but you're also incredibly engaged in the world, and I wondered if it's not a silly question, when something affects you, when you feel the need to say something, how do you decide which of these various mediums to use for it? Is it a, an automatic sense? Well, this is something I must write poetry about or a novel about. This is something I must write a journal, an article about. Or, 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 or do you think, well, what is the best medium for expressing this particular idea? Hmm. I don't think I don't I decide deliberately on anything, but then I think I, I like many other people who are writing have layers inside me, or maybe I'm a crowded person anyway. Like so there are these people in me, one of them is a journalist, one of them is a novelist, and so on. And what I'm about to tell to the audience actually determines how I'm going to say it. 
Poetry is not for many people, and it's a very, very intimate thing. Journalism is for everyone, and you have to decide. You have to know how to speak to the mediocre, to the normality, and so on. And novel is for those adventure seekers, I think. So I think I'm a crowded person, and these are the languages of the people that are living in me. And you told me a few moments ago that the women who blow on knots, which is such a wonderful book, that you wrote you wrote this because you were going through a particularly challenging time in your life and the escapism of, and it is an escapist novel. I mean, it's it's a wonderful novel because it's partly escapist, very funny, but then it's kind of terrifying and, 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 and keeps you on edge all the time. That You wrote this because it was a, a way of release given that you were going through a difficult time in your life. Yeah, I w- it was a time that I was, you know, um, fired from my work as a columnist. And at the time, it was a, you know, there was a political, like always in Turkey, there was a political crisis. And uh, I wasn't, I was almost stigmatized, labeled as the, you know, persona non grata. So once you're fired, you are not eligible for hiring again. So I was basically, yeah, ousted, excommunicated and so on. And there were the, you know, people did not know at the time about trolls, the government trolls and so on. But there was a big, horrible, a one year long attack on me, which made me feel horrible about myself. So it was a time I I was in Tunis trying to write this novel. So I kept it really exciting so I could myself take off my head, my mind from what I am going through. So it is, yeah, it's about, it is maybe a novel of escapism, but it's also a novel of survival, I think, Women Who Blow On Nuts, because it made me, it helped me to survive, literally. <laughs> well, I can strongly recommend it. And is it going to be turned into a film? It'd make a great film, you know. Oh, my God. You know, Matthew, this is my dream. And you know what? I really want Mary Streep to play Madame Lilla. <laughs> I'm like, if you have any connections, please do let me know. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's got a great, it's got a wonderful filmic quality, I, I thought. Now, we're mainly going to talk about together. But before we do, I went to Istanbul about, I don't know, six or seven years ago. I was invited out by a group of people working in kind of progressive organisations. And there were three things about that trip that really stuck with me. One is what an amazing city it is. Beautiful city, t- you know, teeming with life. I mean, of course, I only was really in the kind of tourist centre of it, but nevertheless, it's a wonderful city. Secondly, these people were so nice. They were such thoughtful, humane people. And and even though I was really there to, to find out what was going on in Turkey a bit, they were so curious about what was happening in Britain. And uh, I think it was before the Brexit referendum. But then the third thing that struck me was a terrible pessimism, really. And I, I didn't know what to do about it because I kind of felt, I, you know, my, my natural inkling, AJ, is to try and cheer people up. But I, I didn't, they, they, they offered me no grounds for cheering them up, really. The, <laughs> this was why, you know, uh, President Adoyan was, was moving into a particularly more authoritarian mode. So I've watched what's happened in Turkey. And, and then there was this bit of hope, wasn't there? Uh, last year, was it the year before in the municipal elections, which he tried to overturn, but then the people re-elected. So unfortunately, we're not here to talk about Turkey. I could talk about it for hours. But just tell us where, where are, how are things in your home country right now? And do you have, I was going to say, do you have hope or do you have faith maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I do believe in people of Turkey very much so. I think we have to look at it from this perspective. United States went crazy. People of United States went crazy in four years of Trump. We had it for more than 20 years. So we are hanging there. That's one thing. We are not insane yet. 
and the helplessness and the pessimism, righteously, I mean, like, it, they have a right to be pessimists for sure, but they also have the energy to fight back. That is why the the big cities, the three big cities, are run by opposition party, uh, main opposition, opposition party now. And this is actually inspired me to, this inspired me to write a Financial Times story saying that this is going to be the politi- new political, you know, phenomena all over the world, actually, because it happened in London during pandemic. It happened in New York during pandemic again. The local politics are becoming more important and the political energy, I think, is, you know, it's channelized like towards the local politics. It's going to happen all over the world, especially in those countries that are subjected to right-wing populism, fascism or rising authoritarianism as in Turkey. So yeah, Turkey is always, I wrote a book like that, so I can say the title of the book, Turkey is always an insane and melancholic country, but really, we really miss the, you know, normal degree of insanity in Turkey. This is too much for everyone, I think. Yeah, I so agree with you about cities. And I think it's partly that city leaders are people who do things, you know, when, when there's a blizzard, National politicians form a committee, city leaders get out a shovel. You know, it's a different type of politics. It's more entrepreneurial. It's more action oriented. And I, I think this is one of the big issues that's going on around us, not for us to talk about now, but the, the nation state, it does seem to me, is being squeezed. Daniel Bell, the sociologist, wonderfully said 60 years ago, he said, in the future, the nation state will be too big for the small things in life and too small for the big things in life. And I think yeah. part of what's going on around the world, Eche, is the crisis of the nation state. And that is why we're seeing this reassertion of nationalism. Now, I absolutely loved this book. It moved me. You know, I'm not a soppy person, you know, but so someone said to me, you know, I was talking about it. And so well, what is it? And so I'm going to tell you how I described it. Now, you may, you may hate this. And I know that you're somebody who will tell me absolutely if you do. But I said, this book is a primer in political mindfulness. That's what I thought it was. It's a book that helps you try to work out how to think in the political and the crazy political world in which we live. How how do you feel about that as as a description of it? I would love that only if the one who listens to you knows about mindfulness in full, because mindfulness has become this, you know, too popular. Uh, it, it has become a commodity, so to speak. But I, rem- you know, when you look at the history of the concept, it's something else. It's so big and so on. So yeah, in that sense, thank you very much. It is a absolutely perfect description of the book. And I wouldn't even call it a book. Maybe it's a, you know, as you said, you you have been moved by it. I can call it a cardiac massage with words of to the hearts of people who are who are a little bit hopeless at the moment. I think. Well, that's a, a lovely description as well. And actually, there's an alternative to this notion of mindfulness, which is attention. And we'll come to that. I'm going to just pick three out of your 10 essay titles, each of which is built around a kind of dichotomy, which is not this, but that. And so let's look at the first, which is faith over hope. And the obvious question to start with, Eje, uh, is what is the difference for you between faith and hope? Well, there are many differences, of course, but the one that interests me most is that hope can be absent. There are times that are hopeless, but faith cannot be cannot be removed from the human 
human existence, I think, because we are the ones who invented faith and then we invented gods. Therefore, faith is inherent in us, whereas hope is a is a very fragile word, word for such times like ours. And also, I think hope became an emotional crutch for many people because after writing, writing How to Lose a Country, it has been se- uh, published in several languages. So I went around the world, talked to people about the book, and I, you know, get, I got feedbacks and so on. And the most popular question was, so is there hope? So I'm like, my answer was, what if, if there is no hope? And also, what if there is hope? I mean, like, does it change what you're going to do or how you're going to be as a person or as a political agent? So hope is a very slippery word. It's fragile and it doesn't work because it is binary. It, it provides us this bi- with binary understanding of the word, uh, understanding of the world. There is hope or there is no hope. So what is it to us if there is or there is no hope? It's about us. It's about our uh, ability of uh, believing in something that makes us create this world. So I think faith is a word that talks about reason to act. And I think it's not hope that people lost in the last three, four decades. It is the reason to act because they do not believe that there is no alternative, that propaganda worked actually. And people start thinking that there is no alternative and this is our natural state. This is the best we can be. So I think they somehow lost their ability to have faith in themselves and in humankind in general. Yeah, I think it's so, there's so many things about this idea that I think are powerful, Edge. So one is it reminded me, I think, of a line that I first read in a book by Roberto Unger and Cornel West, in which they say something like, it is not so much hope that leads to action as action that leads to hope. Exactly. Uh, and I think that, that as you say, that, that the problem with hope, I, I do a lot of work on the future of work and people often say to me, are you optimistic or pessimistic? And I say we must reject optimism or pessimism because optimism or pessimism exactly. are premised on the idea there is a future out there to which we are traveling. And yet, instead, we must say, what is the future to which we want to travel? You know, so I like that. But and you address this in the chapter, AJ, but is it possible to have faith without God? I think that the 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 death of religion and of course religion is still very strong in many many parts of the world but the decline of religion in a country like britain for example it is very problematic because we need faith and yet we haven't yet found the foundations for a kind of humanist faith have we no but we have to keep searching for it don't we <laughs> because yeah faith is a very dangerous word as you know it has a habit of getting out of hand and it People kill each other, have been killing each other for centuries because of faith. So it is not easy to talk about faith in humankind, especially I'm coming, I'm a political person, I'm talking, I'm writing and talking about politics. But I do believe that we have to take the risk of taking, you know, speaking about faith, either, you know, religious or not, but I would prefer secular faith in humankind. We have to take that risk now because the you know, emotions of politics or politics of emotions at the moment are very, very vigorous. And as progressive people, people who want justice, equality and dignity, we have to be able to use the capability of having faith and making people have faith in a better now. So this is why I mentioned faith and, yeah, religious aspect is, it is either religious or poetry that I talk about. We talk about God and I talk it through poetry, maybe. 
But, you know, this is what I want to do this time, uh, talk about faith in humankind and in ourselves, because this is the thing that has been stolen from us, I think, after especially 1970s, during 1980s, especially. So I won't do a lot of this, but I want to read at various points in our conversation just little quotes to give people a sense of the of the of the power of your language. You you write in this chapter sooner or later. You write sooner or later we would have to recognise that what turns humans to rags and tatters is the loss of direction and our ability to believe that we are competent enough to find a new one. That this that the loss of faith is what leaves us with desperation, and that people in desperate circumstances, can survive almost anything if their faith remains intact. Exactly. I mean, you remember Obama, he just came to power saying, repeating the motto, we, yes, we can. Although it was a directionless, we can. But that, even the word, those three words, like mesmerized people. So there is a strength, there is a power that, that there that we have to think about and we have to start thinking of using it to make the better world a better place with less hate and so on. Now, one of your characteristics, Ajay, is that you're searingly honest about what's wrong with the world and how deep and structural those problems are, but yet you are absolutely at heart an optimist. And again, in this chapter... Towards the end, you, you, you make two really interesting points. First is you say we must not judge humanity only by what it's achieved. We must judge humanity by what it has aspired to. I thought that was a wonderful uh, point, which you illustrate with something I didn't know about, which was a tour of Bristol, which is a tour of buildings that were planned but never built. So that's a wonderful idea. But also you talk about a whole variety of kind of spontaneous acts of New Yorkers erasing swastikas from tube windows, Lebanese protesters singing Baby Shark to a, a child who's stuck in traffic, Irish school kids organising to stop the deportation of their Nigerian friend. How do you connect these small, spontaneous acts and this notion of aspiration to your clear-headed analysis that what's wrong with the world is deep and structural? No. Uh, first of all, I'm not an optimist. And I'm, as you do, I am rejecting that pessimism, optimism, binary thing. But I am trying to tell the truth, really. That is true, that I am trying to be honest. I am not. Co- and one of the things that terrifies me most, Matthew, it is that, you know, they, people think that if they don't know me from How to Lose a Country or from other, other political articles and so on, they would think that this is one of those rainbows and unicorns and love, love, heart, heart books. It is not like that. I am telling stories from the harshest reality all o- from all over the world and so on. So, and also uh, those moments in near history that you enumerated here now, I'm not connecting them, but I am looking at the fact that we are extremely enthusiastic when sharing those moments on social media. What we feel when we share the footage of, um, of men or women or people doing the right thing. And I think that is the main reason that made me think that people secretly believe in their kind and they really want to be better. This is an important thing to me because we are, the, the important thing is to think about the evil and the good in the people, in, in humankind, in humans. I think this is one of those times we are going through another crisis like the Second World War and Nazi era. 
Nazi, you know, Nazi Germany inspired many thinkers like Freud, Hannah Arendt, Adorno, and several others to think about the evil in the human and how it displays itself and so on. I think we are now in another moment where we have to or need to think about what is good in us and what is evil. This is a deep and extremely, you know, infinite plateau of discussion, but Seriously, we are at that moment again, and it's interesting that there are no, you know, uniforms or no fascism as we know it, but we still, we yet, you know, think about if, whether the humankind is evil or not, right? Yeah, well, well, let's, let's identify one of those, another one of these distinctions, which I think goes to the heart, to this notion of distinguishing between those emotions which will help us and those which will not. So another one of your dichotomies is dignity over pride. And I'll start again by asking you what the difference between dignity and pride is, but I'll, I'll help you, not as, if, not as if you need help, but I will help you with, with, with one of the quotes from the book where you say, of dignity and pride, you say, they seem close enough in meaning to be mistaken for one another. However, there is a crucial difference. Pride divides the masses into us and them while dignity is about an us that excludes no one. Is that at the core of it, or are there other dimensions to this distinction between dignity and pride? And why did you think this was such an important kind of difference to to talk about? Because I think it tells the difference between the two masses that we have been seeing in the world lately. One mass, masses of people actually all around the world, shouted dignity in different languages, in Tahrir, in Hong Kong, in, you know, United States during Black Lives Matter and so on and so forth. And the other mass, like Brexit supporters, Trump supporters, Erdogan supporters, or Orban supporters in Hungary, or Putin supporters, whatever, they were talking about pride. They wanted their pride back as if somebody can take it from them. And pride is is such a word. It needs oppression to prove itself. It needs the other. It needs the smaller, you know, weaker other uh, to exist. Whereas dignity does not exclude anyone. It cannot exclude anyone because it is inherent in us. And um, shouting dignity means believing in that anyway. So these, the difference between two masses, I think, tells the actual difference between two words. One, one of them, you know, uh, advertises hatred and the other one advertises love. And I'm really, I'm feeling really, you know, uh, a little bit stressed out when I see, say the word love, but we also have to think about and talk about love with a political and a new perspective, I think. There was something in this chapter, AJ, which really kind of grabbed me. And that was the idea that one of the ways in which we deny people dignity is not that we don't give them enough, but that we don't ask them for help. And, you know, this remind me, there's a, a marvellous woman in, in Britain I've worked with over many, many years called Louise Casey. And she has worked on a whole variety of issues like homelessness or the grooming of girls in particular communities, or, you know, she's kind of called in when there's a a problem to try and sort it out. And she's one of these people who is both brilliant at coming up with solutions, but also engaging with ordinary people. And she once made this exact point to me. She was dealing with what were called troubled families, families that had you know, lots of problems and finding it difficult to cope. And what she said was that 
the first thing she tried to do with these families was to see whether they could help other families in a similar situation to theirs. And this was truly transformational because these families had been offered help, often misguided help, paternalistic help, interfering help, authoritarian help for many years. Nobody had ever thought that they had the agency to help other people. And it was it was an incredibly powerful thing for them. So I love that point. And you you make it in particular, if you could share it with us, Eche, with the story of the garbage collectors in Istanbul. Tell us about that. It's a lovely story. Yeah, I wrote a novel called Banana Sounds. I stayed in Beirut for a year. So after this book was published, there were garbage collectors in Istanbul, Ankara, in other cities as well. And they know me through my writing. And because I write, I wrote about their organization when they were, you know, trying to come against the municipality who were taking away their jobs and so on. So they like me. I like them. Uh, and they're, they're garbage collectors. They simply have nothing in life. Like, you know, like they don't possess anything. But what they gave me during the you know, publicity period of my novel was amazing. They got organized secretly and they went to the streets in several cities and they wrote the name of my novel, stenciled it actually on the walls of the city. That is like illegal. Actually, I shouldn't have said that, but it, it taught me a lot because I saw them after doing that, like this uh, night uh, of some, you know, cause, so to speak. And yeah, this is what happens to people when you recognize them. They become powerful because, you know, having faith, in, you know, saying that I believe in you makes a person exist actually in a different way. And with dignity, we, we you know, when we have dignity, we, you know, almost fill the space that we have to fill on this planet as a human being. We are becoming as big as, a human being should be when we have dignity. Yeah, it also reminded me, Echev, something that the social theorist Tawney said about the Labour government, the post-war Labour government. His criticism was, he said, it wasn't that we didn't give people enough, it's we didn't ask enough of people, which I thought, you know, it, it was a kind of critique of a kind of paternalistic socialism rather than a socialism which seeks to mobilise people as, as as actors in change. Absolutely fas- fascinating. Ma- Matthew, I... I- I, I think I understood this thing about human nature in this mystery about human nature in Beirut. Actually, people, all of us, we secretly want to sacrifice ourselves to something because this I is so, oh my God, so heavy to carry. So we want to melt it in something. But also we are, uh, you know, extremely afraid. Actually, we are terrified of melting as well. But it is this, you know, seducing effect. It's this pull and push of human existence. Yeah, we want to exist, but we actually want to melt into something, not to exist at all as the I. Uh, Absolutely. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. One last essay I want to talk about, and this is the essay which... And this returns to my kind of notion of mindfulness. And you're, you're quite right that we've got to be careful because this has become a commoditized word. But we get into a bit of this in the chapter, which is about attention over anger. And for me, actually, this, this chapter contains two surprises or surprises for somebody who ha- hasn't read other of your work. So this is a chapter in which the activist rejects anger. But it's also the chapter in which the artist critiques emotion as the basis for action. And these are these are kind of quite surprising in a way. So let's deal with the first. As an activist who's used anger yourself, you say you've used it and and people have so much to be angry about. This rejection of anger is a is a is a surprising move. Yeah. I wouldn't call myself an activist because it would be unjust for the real activists, I think. But I know what you mean. And yes, I used anger and I still cannot watch my videos when I shout, and you know, at the, you know, during the TV programs and so on. But I realized that it's not the anger, but maybe the inflation of anger or the extreme expressions of anger and feeling the communications fair with expressions of anger is my problem because people, you know, we are going through a period where emotions are commodified and we are communicating in a fair where algorithms are directing our emotions and so on. So in this case, I think anger does not function as it did in 1970s or 1980s or 1990s. Anger is now a spectacle and the spectacle does not change anything, one. And second, it doesn't, this too much expression of anger does not leave a space for to think and to speak and the, to understand and so on. Anger communities are building in every language and they, it is as if they're working for Facebook or Twitter, or whatever. They're not getting anywhere. So anger does not help anymore. And we have to replace it with attention and attention. Uh, I think we have to cool down a little bit, don't you think? I mean, like, you've been through Brexit role for a long time. You know, you would know what I mean. It's too much, too much emotions. And the history does not care about our emotions. That's the thing I wanted to say, actually. So the history cares about what we do. And in order to do something, we have to pay attention. Yeah, well, look, this is clearly one of the pernicious impacts of, of social media, which is that in, in social media land, you can speak in a way which we've forgotten what the world was like before social media, but so much of what's in social media were, would would be if, if you were to stand on a street corner shouting the things that people now put on social media, people would consider you to be a lunatic. They would consider you to be a dangerous fanatic um, yeah. and they would discount your views. But yeah, on social media, this is common currency. And as you say, the social media platforms whatever they might say, encourage this because nothing gets clicks more than outrage. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a profit profit based, irregular face, uh, unregulated, sorry. So we are trying to build a morality 
out of this. We are trying to build a politics out of this, and we are new at it. I'm like I told it in the book. I'm like we are like these, uh, you know, people who are going to seances, uh, magnetism seances when electricity was first controlled, or we are like those, you know, old people who are saying good evening to the TV presenter when TVs uh, get to our homes. So we are trying, and we are learning together, but it's not going <laughs> too well, I should say. <laughs> Final question, which we've kind of referred to, actually, but yeah, I, I want to get into it a bit more deeply. And I've, I've, I've watched you, you speak online. I've watched you speak about this. So you're an artist, creative artist, but you want to create, cr- critique the idea of a world where people say that the most powerful kind of legitimacy for opinions to say, I feel, or, you know, my experience is, or my point, who want to turn things, who want to say, look, the basis for, for a position is sufficient, that I feel it, and that is enough. And, and many people would say, well, that's, isn't that what artists do? They, they, they channel what they feel, and, and yet you're critiquing that. Is, that. is that, am I misunderstanding this, or are you saying, well, Feeling and personal feeling is great for the cultural sphere, but it's it's not right for the political sphere. I'll unpack this idea yeah. for us. Yeah, sure. I think it, it it started in 1980s when after there is no alternative, there was no need for confrontation. So in order to evade confrontation, in order to suppress antagonism, I should say, people started using this I feel expression whenever they want to tell something because they think it's still happening they think that this protects them from any kind of challenge or any kind of counter argument so it is actually an evasion of discussion so if everybody feels who is going to think i want to ask and also you know yeah this is why i i am so against this i feel thing but also yeah emotions and uh, the commodification of emotions also the inflation of emotions i know it's, it's it's a bit bizarre coming from an artist as you call me but yes i do think that because there is no you know we have to think we have to talk about thoughts and ideas more and less about emotions it doesn't go anywhere it, it just stops. It's a one-way, uh, you know, conversation. It's a monologue, actually. I feel, okay, you feel. So what can you, what can I do? I cannot discuss you about your feelings. So, yeah, there's no discussion. There's no opening there, I think. So I'm going to link to the questions that, that we've had. One is, mm-hmm. why do you think we choose pride over dignity? And the other is, do you think that the decline of dignified working-class jobs has led to the anger and rage that we are? This is obviously part of the thesis around the kind of heartlands that voted for, for, for Trump. Where do you, what do you think is the foundations for this stripping away of dignity and its replacement by this shriller notion of pride? And how do we get dignity back? We can't reinvent those old jobs, those old communities. What will be the foundations for a sense of dignity, for, particularly for those people? Because, you know, most people in any society are just going about their day-to-day lives. What is the foundations for their dignity if the old communities, the old jobs are not going to come back. Why pride? Because it's easy. Uh, because pride is something that you can capitalize on in terms of politics endlessly. And dignity requires a overhaul, take, uh, taking down of the entire system that produces indignity. That is, of course, a revolutionary thing. Anyway, so, yeah, dignity requires a system change. That's why it's not easy to talk about it, whereas pride does not change anything. And what has changed in England 
after you took your back, uh, you, you know, these people took their pride back. Nothing, nothing changed in their life. So it didn't really work, did it? Or for Trump as well, you know. So, yeah, pride is easy. Pride is politically utilized easily. So, yeah, that's why pride. And, you know, this is not the first time people are doing choices against their interests. Yeah, the history is full of that. Yeah, no, I was going to say in terms of the, no, I just going to say in terms of the jobs question, you do say at one point in the book that that so much of the anger and pain in the world is because people feel that they their only value is their market value, and and so I, I guess this is linked, this is linked to this point about jobs. Yeah? Absolutely, and when you tell them to get angry, like you know why don't why are you are not angry and so on, like I'm talking about really working class people, they would spit on you because like what anger? I'm trying to survive. I, I have to keep my attention on surviving now. So, yeah, uh, and they are, they are the ones who are suffering from most indignified situations and indignifying conditions and so on. But, you know, it's not easy for them to think about that and then also <laughs> survive. Also, yeah, this is what I wanted to say, actually. I'm not uh, elaborating on that. And, and part of this, uh, Edge, is, is about masculinity, I guess. You know, the... the the women's liberation movement and feminism has combined with economic trends to create to to undermine former notions of masculinity and these can't be we 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 wouldn't want to go back to those but yet we have to find a way for yeah. everyone to feel useful including men and i i guess in a way this is kind of part of this question is what is the what are the foundations for people to feel that sense of value that they that they matter this is one of the really big questions i think yeah um well i i wrote a book the entire book about that so i don't know what to say hmm i think yeah we have to uh think imagine and start building a system that is beyond this and it's it's not that difficult it's not impossible and we can do it this is what i and you know even the word we can do it i think we should make people valuable because yeah they're not you know earning enough but they can actually change the world by joining the forces <laughs> so to speak so yeah this is how we build it this is going well we are at the last act of capitalism and we are suffering all of us suffering on different levels uh, and there's going to be a new system. And we. this is the time, actually, this is our last chance to think about a new system and to think it properly, like uh, realistically and so on. And as long as we talk about these things, it is actually building in our minds. Even to tell that you are more than your market value or you are not your market value to another person would change several things in our lives, I think. So while we're in this kind of part of the conversation... Actually, historically, both good things and bad things have come out of America. You know, neoliberalism comes yeah. out, comes out of America, but the New Deal also comes out of America. And America itself, as as writers like Robert Putnam have pointed out, have been through periods of collectivism and inclusion, and then periods of exclusion and inequality. And and these are big waves. We it's almost impossible, isn't it, not to put so much faith in Biden and hope that that Biden project succeeds because it is an alternative project in so many ways. It's a a project which rejects anger. It's a project which cares about the environment, cares about equality, believes that government can be an agent for good. So I I, I have to tell you, 
you know, I I'm putting almost all my almost all my eggs in the Biden basket. Am I being naive, Eche? <laughs> well, I'm putting my eggs in Bernie Sanders' basket. Because if Bernie Sanders was not there, the balance of politics would have been completely different. Biden wouldn't have the courage to uh, propose this plan, almost a new, you know, new plan for a new deal. So, yeah, uh, this is why we need this world, actually, not we. The world needs the leftist politics because they kind of form the triangulation points of morality and what's supposed to be done in, in, in this planet. So, yeah, you put the eggs in Biden, maybe, but you put them because of Bernie Sanders, actually. Because Bernie, yeah, don't you think? Yeah. You know, I was pondering the other day, what is the, I always think that the, the political innovation is to do with just like cooking, really. It's about putting ingredients together that have always been in the kitchen, but putting them together in a slightly different way that fits the time. And I think what, what is interesting for me about Biden is that he has on the one hand quite a radical political economy, which, as you say, is influenced by Sanders. But on the other hand, he has a very inclusive, very, very moderate kind of way of cult- cultural reference points. And he's not ashamed of being proud of America and American values. And it seems to me that combination of, of a kind of inclusive cultural, cult- cultural reference point, but a radical political economy, that might be uh, the kind of secret mixture that, that progressives around the world can start to think about adapting. Absolutely. And this is what municipalities in Turkey doing, the, you know, uh, opposition party uh, municipalities. They're exactly doing this. It is the radical love because, you know, Turkey has been through a lot and there's this extreme polarization in the country. People really like literally want to kill each other when they come from different political camps. So, yeah, they're, you know, these municipalities are using the uh, embracing kind of embracing politics and that kind of narrative, the together narrative, so to speak. So, yeah, this will be the new thing. But also to keep these medium, uh, how shall I put it, to keep the balance towards a little bit to the left, I think the new politics, um, the new political organisms that came up from Tahrir or such movements, uh, they're going to, you know, go around these local politics, these new uh, local leaders. So they're going to turn the wreck of democracy, current democracy, into a living reek. This is what I see for the future, especially in coming 10 years. So that takes me to a question asked by Sarah. You've talked about Bernie Sanders, you talked about cities. Are there any particular politicians or political movements who you think prefigure the kind of future that we need? Who, who do you particularly admire? Which movements and which politicians? I, my hometown is also run by a uh, main opposition uh, mayor, Tunç Soyer. He's an amazing person and he is he's really interesting to follow, uh, I would say. Selling the seeds in Turkey are forbidden, banned. So he is uh, organizing exchange of seeds markets. So the seeds that have been buried, you know, in places, uh, I don't know, whatever, they came out. So he's actually making a lot of investment in, in food, in agriculture, which will be the main, one of the main issues that we will have to think about in coming 10 years, I think. We haven't talked a great deal about the thing that's been surrounding us for the last 18 months, which is this terrible pandemic. What do you think, Ajay, is, this is another question from our audience. How do you think COVID has, ha, has it impacted our 
not just our way of life, but our imagination? Is it something which you think we will look back on as a as a positive turning point? Yeah, I do think that. Uh, we're in a, uh, suddenly we found ourselves in an apocalyptic movie. And the most important thing that, uh, that I see in this movie is that we don't actually kill each other, like they say in the Hollywood movies, or we don't go completely cannibals or something. So the first reflex of humankind is to help each other and help each other to survive together. This is what I saw throughout the pandemic. And this is what I liked, actually. And also people risk their lives uh, to shop for dignity, especially in Black Lives Matter during the pandemic. So I thought also that humankind can still risk its life in, in order to defend the human dignity. So that's the other thing I saw in pandemic. And of course, the crisis that we are going through, the economic and political crises, they have been crystallized, but also um, the human nature and the good in human nature have been has been crystallized as well, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I think in particular, people have started to question the relationship between social value and market value in a really interesting way around, you know, who were who the people we really relied upon? Why is it that so many of those people are in jobs that have been low pay and, and low status? Let's turn back to you as we as we start to draw to the close. You know, Intelligence Squared, you do get an inte- you do get particularly intelligent questions. So here's here's one, and you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation of this writer's name. So the question is: Algerian-born writer Helen. It's tell me how you pronounce this. It's it's C I X O U S. Helen, I don't know. Oh well, Helen Sichu. I'm going to say I don't know. Who lived for extended periods between countries and places. Uh, apparently she wrote, Helene wrote, of the search for belonging or a way of not belonging. She writes, it's a wonderful quote this, I felt perfectly at home nowhere, which I see as home being the act of writing rather than a physical space. Uh, do you have a nostalgia for home? What a lovely question. Isn't that an amazing question? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like my writing has been centered around two words. I think when I die, people, you know, somebody will write an article about me and it's going to say this, that she wrote about home and road. And she, she was all about this. So, yeah, I unfortunately had to think about what is home for for several times in my life and in terms of country, in terms of actual home and so on. So I came to the point, I came to this understanding that the country is a home. Uh, the country is a table, actually. It is a table as big as, uh, you know, big enough to, uh, to you know, in, accommodate your loved ones. And uh, the rest, you know, the surrounding vestness is the rest of the country. So, and then now I'm thinking, I, I have this portable table and it's my home. Wherever I go, I put this table, I gather my loved ones and my friends. That's my home. And unfortunately, some of us have to reinvent home in different, uh, in different ways. And obviously, Helen was one of them. And yes, my language is my home as well. But then now I'm uh, trying to speak English. I'm writing in English, but I'm not very good at speaking it. I'm trying to make English my home as well, another home. But then recently I realized that I am never a local. I, I have been born in Izmir, my hometown. I lived in Ankara. I, I, you know, I studied in Ankara. I lived in Istanbul quite a long time. And I never learned the names of the streets, roads, whatever. 
I was never a local, I noticed. And I'm now living in Zagreb for the last five years. And I know only two names of two streets. So I think there's something in me that rejects to be a local. I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, it's maybe it's an age thing. You know, I'm a lot older than you. And I would have said I was exactly the same. But as I've got older, the local has become more important to me. I've found myself remembering the names of streets, even though my memory is not great. So I wonder whether this kind of sense of localism comes back to you as uh, as you get older, as maybe as you as your desire to conquer the world, anyone's desire to conquer the world diminishes. One becomes more focused on the on the the local and the and the concrete. Final question, Eje, which is which goes back, and I'm going to wave the book around again because uh, you anyone who doesn't immediately at the end of this session go online and buy this book is a fool. That's all I can say. But a couple of questions, Izzy, for example, um, as this is a book which is very personal, it's written in a very personal way. It's written to the reader to to, to reflect and to think about. If you are with somebody, Eje, and somebody who says, look, I agree with you. I agree with you about what is wrong in the world. I agree with you that we are at this turning point where the kind of failures, the structural failures of capitalism, of nationhood, of representative democracy, that all of these failures are combining. And on the one hand, this could be a a point of disaster. But on the other hand, it could be a point of transformation. But yet they say all of that and then they cross their arms and say, but there is nothing I can do. I, I'm going to watch Netflix and or whatever it is. <laughs> what is it that you would say to them? What is it that you would say to them to, to, to encourage them to mobilise? How would you tell them to start? You know, there are a lot of people watching and listening right now to this conversation who, who feel like that. They want to make change, but they don't know how and they, they don't know how they can have agency. What would be your advice to them? First of all, I'm watching Netflix as well. And actually, yesterday I ran into Peaky Blinders again, and I was like, ooh, so happy. So <laughs> there's nothing wrong in that. But I think we all need to understand our true size on this planet. And our true size can only be understood when we put ourselves in the history when it's happening. I can tell you that there is a big price to pay when history is happening and you're not there. People might think that they're protecting themselves from something. People might think that, okay, I'm going to wait here until it's all over. It's Yes, they can protect themselves. It's okay. Uh, but I have to tell them that there is a big price to pay after the history is, you know, you know how should I put it? Ah, there's a story in the book. A friend of mine left her husband because he didn't join the Gezi protests. He said, she said, I cannot look at him. I cannot really, I am like disgusted by him because how can you be so uninterested in life? How can you be so out of love that you don't go to Gizzi? And their house was like, you know, five minutes to Taksim Square where all the protests were happening. So the price is, uh, the price of not being included in history is that being left out by the beautiful people of our kind. So by the beautiful members of our kind, you have to be loved. In order to do that, you have to be in the reality. And when you see the whole reality, and when you're in, you know, close enough to, you know, touch the reality, you would see that there's a lot of fun, a r- real fun in uh, whole reality. Yeah, this is what I would say to them. I think. Yeah, Edge, I, I think that's that's really powerful, and you know, I think that, and and there are points in the book where you intimate this that. You know, for the 
ancient Greeks, for Enlightenment philosophers. I remember Richard Sennett wrote a wonderful book, I think, called The Fall of Public Man about this. There was the idea that your public persona was your real persona and that your private stuff was a bit dull, really. It was, you know, okay, you know, your own feelings and all of that, you know, you, you had them, but it wasn't something... It was your public presence that was your authentic self. And it seems to me we have lost this idea in favour of the notion that our authenticity lies in introspection. And so I completely agree with you that I'd want to say to somebody, well, look, you know, you have one life, you have one way of expressing yourself. Is it going to be this kind of ghastly introspective stuff? Or do you express yourself as a public actor? And that is your real authentic self, who you are out there, who you are to other people, who you are in the world. That is you. You know, and, and and if you're not out there, you don't you don't really exist. Now, look, we're getting carried away, which I knew would happen because uh, you're such a hero of mine. I'm waving the book yet again. It's been the most incredible honour to talk to you, Eche. The book is amazing. All your stuff is amazing. Everyone should join your fan club. Um, I'm happy to be the secretary of the British branch of, of your fan club. Thank you so very much, Matthew. I cannot find words now. Thank you very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.